people before being overpowered by police. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. On this Tuesday, well, the United States slaps new sanctions on Russia. The U.S. Federal Reserve orders Bank of America to suspend its dividend. Pfizer says it will reconsider its options on AstraZeneca. And the Hong Kong Mercantile Exchange is ordered to be wound up. A little food for thought as we get started this morning. We are currently reconsidering our options regarding AstraZeneca. So that, that's Pfizer CEO Ian Reid. AstraZeneca twice refused an offer that was some 30% over its share price back in January. And what about the latest trends in markets? I think the trends that we saw in the first quarter continue. So M&A, you see it every day. They're large, they're global, a lot of cross-border activity. So we're continuing to see that trend, and I've been talking about that for quite some time. That's Morgan Stanley CFO, the chief financial officer, Ruth Porat volumes that we talked a lot about during the first quarter, lower activity, we're continuing to see that really does persist into the second quarter at this point. In our extended discussions this morning, we'll ask, is the torrid sell-off of high-flying tech stocks linked to the debacle of high-frequency trading? And is that part of the lower volumes that we're seeing that you just heard there from Ruth Porat? Well, joining us for that discussion is Eric Hunsader. He's the founder and CEO of Nanex, and he's kind of a big deal in this area, and we're pretty happy to have him on the program. So be listening for that. That'll come up about 8.15 or so. We'll also be taking a look at Global Energy markets with Simon Powell of CLSA. He's a big deal, too. In fact, we usually get the, the best guests on this program. I'm just saying. We'll also be taking a look at, um, at whether high-frequency traders are cheating you and cheating the system. And we'll look at markets as we normally do with Ben Collette of Sunrise Brokers, a handsome dude and a very low voice. So let's get started this morning. Australian and New Zealand stocks rising after futures responded to the higher U.S. club. Uh, in a few minutes, we'll get you the latest info on Asian stocks. The markets have just opened. We'll get to that. The yen maintained its retreat while gold held on to some of its declines. The Fed begins its monthly policy meeting today. The major U.S. indices recovered in the last hour of trading. The Dow gained 87 points to 16,448. The S&P 500 up six at 1869. So here's how the Asian markets are moving at the moment. In Australia, the ASX. 200 is up four points. In Seoul, the Kospi is up five points. We mentioned that New Zealand was a little bit higher. The dollar yen is 102.51 and the euro is 1.385 U.S. dollars. So among the top stories this morning, uh, the Obama administration has imposed sanctions on seven Russian officials and some 17 companies linked to President Vladimir Putin. Mr. Putin says the sanctions won't work. The ideas voiced by our Western partners to impose sanctions on some Russian industries, above all on the defense industry, are aimed at stopping us from replacing imports and thus to continue our dependence on, among others, Ukrainian factories. It's inept. We'll find an adequate replacement anyway. We will survive and move forward. 
The words of Vladimir Putin. The Federal Reserve has ordered Bank of America to halt its planned dividend payout and share buyback. The Fed says Bank of America submitted incorrect data for recent tests of banks' capital strength. The Fed said the bank has to resubmit its plan for review within 30 days, and it needs to address what it called quantitative errors in the calculation of Bank of America's capital levels. Some bank analysts say this is extremely embarrassing to Bank of America. Hong Kong exports saw their fastest growth since last November. This part of the news flow, those exports growing 3.4% in March from a year ago, following contractions in the previous couple of months and a stagnant December. And as we mentioned, U.S. drug maker Pfizer may have to increase its offer in a potential $100 billion takeover of AstraZeneca. That offer has been rebuffed by AstraZeneca. RTHK's Robert Kemp has more. Pfizer said on Monday it had proposed a takeover to AstraZeneca in January worth £58.8 billion, pounds, or nearly £47 pounds per share, and had contacted its British rival again on Saturday seeking to discuss further a takeover. The chase was welcomed by investors in both companies as deal-making grips the healthcare industry. AstraZeneca said Pfizer's suggested offer undervalued the company very significantly, adding that Pfizer wanted to pay 70% in shares and only 30% in cash. AstraZeneca urged its shareholders to take no action and said it remained confident of its independent strategy. Let's get a little more juice now right from the horse's mouth. Here's the Pfizer CEO, Ian Reid. We believe that a potential combination could further enhance the ability for value creation for shareholders of both companies. And he explains why. It would allow AstraZeneca shareholders to become significant shareholders in a combined company, enabling participation in future value creation potential. And for Pfizer, a potential transaction would be aligned with our strategy and comes from a position of strength in terms of confidence in our business model, positioning of our recently launched products, our new commercial operating structure, and our research pipeline. Oil is priced now at $108.12, and gold has fallen uh, about $4 an ounce, $1,296.50, down two fifty in Asian morning trade. Let's welcome Ben Collette, head of Japan and Asian equities at Sunrise Brokers, to this program. Ben, good morning. We are hoping to be speaking with Ben Collette, Hello. head of Japan and Asian Equities at Sunrise Brokers. Ben, a very good morning to you here. You're on the radio here in Hong Kong, speaking to the entire world as people are listening all over the globe. A very good morning to you. Uh, just generally on markets, before we look at Japan, uh, do you see continued selling in the high flyers? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, we... Um uh, you know, as we head into as we head into May, I think earnings, despite the fact that they've, they've been above on average across most sectors, um, you know, the market is uh, uh, is very expensive, and particularly some of the names that aren't justifying their valuations with earnings in the U.S. Now, that's not the same here in uh, uh, here in Asia, and specifically in Hong Kong listed internet stocks, for example. But um, I don't yet see a reason to start wading full into the market. I think there's still a lot of optimism in there. Um, the VIX indices is still trading very cheaply, in my opinion. Um, and I think, um, 
you know, we're, uh, we're expecting a bottom to occur in May, uh, which means we're not quite there yet. That's not to say we can't bounce along the way. We're not going to move in a straight line. So we are buying some things, but on a very short-term basis. It seems that in that area, though, the baby has been thrown out with the bathwater. Uh, even a company like Google uh, just uh, hit its 200-day moving average. It did bump up a little bit from that. But uh, as you say, a lot of tech companies out here that are making money, they all got flushed down the drain. Yeah, I um, in, in the, the issue with this, I think um, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, there's a there's a lot of fast money in some of these names. Um, Google, in particular, we you know we think is a is a is a great company, um, and the way this traded overnight, I, I was very encouraged that bounce um, and the volumes that went through. So Google's probably where I'd be looking first, uh, and in fact, here is um, you know we always we never mind buying Google. Um, it does tend to uh, uh, it does tend to attract a lot of hot, um, fast money, but you know they've got um, your amount of earnings. They are they are the model for um, at least in the U.S. for how uh, how you do their business. Um, most of the things they do or attempt to do are copied by everyone else over here, um, and they are still monetizing. Um, you know they are still monetizing their access, and they have problems so, with the mobile space. But. So you wonder, you know, why a company like that gets sold a lot? But as you say, it's a theme, and it just it just happens, and it just rolls, and it it gathers a bit of momentum. Uh, I think it all started with Twitter's earnings back around February sixth. Twitter started selling down a little bit before that, but we do get Twitter tomorrow, so that could be quite interesting if they don't announce that they somehow picked up users and you know we're starting to to monetize uh, the whole thing. Then um, you know maybe it does continue for another whole quarter. Yeah, well, I. Um um, speaking uh, personally, in my humble opinion, I, I wouldn't hold Twitter um, or buy or, or trade in Twitter. I don't really get the. Uh, I don't really get how their growth um, in revenue or where it's going to come from. Um, going well, people forward. said the same thing about Facebook, and uh, their earnings were great this past quarter. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I was, um, you know, hands hands in the air. I, I was wrong on. Uh, I was wrong on Facebook until we saw the numbers. But um, you know, as a, as a consistent Facebook user, and rather, um, I, I think the. Uh, the, the issue with, with ownership or rather consistency of, of the user base and, and Facebook's an easy story to uh, uh, to get Twitter uh, less so but again it's a you know that that's a company that the business model I don't really buy into um, okay but as you point out you know I'm very uh, it could very well be wrong but we're not gonna we don't trade that the Fed usually applies some bomb, uh, it seems, here of late, particularly with Janet Yellen at the helm. We've got that meeting getting started uh, today. Do you expect uh, maybe to get a little bit of a positive bounce this week because of the Fed? Um, uh, good question. I mean, I, like I said, I don't think we're... Um I don't think we're going we're gonna to see any significant balances yet. Um, we're expecting that to come maybe later in May. Um, if one of the indices to look at, just a, at the best picture uh, on the U.S. we get is from the um, NYSE index, which can't actually be traded, but it's a, it's a summation of the indices that we look at. And this looks to us pretty uh, pretty weak. Uh, you know, the Fed is, is the biggest holder of, of, of U.S. Treasuries. Um, and that, you know, that is a historically... Um, a historically unique position. Um, we are seeing a lot of patterns that we saw in 2007 reoccur. Now, I don't think we're going to get 2007 reoccurrence, but um, certainly from you know from from where we are, um, the, the, I, I fail to see what the Fed's going to do to, uh, to the kind of policy changes you have to make to, to push the market higher here from uh, from the Fed's point of view. They're really in a support game rather than a, yeah. than a driving up game, and you know the market is long based on this expectation. So, I, I think. So far, uh, Miss Yellen has proved, um, um, well, has proved to be, uh, I wouldn't 
quite so reckless, but difficult to interpret. Um, I think the I think the risk is certainly to the downside of anything she says. So, okay. Well, uh, let, let's let's switch a little bit to Japan because I know you have a very close interest there and, and specialized knowledge. Uh, and it seems like the mood has really changed. Uh, it seems like almost everybody now thinks that the Abenomics third arrow has has fallen uh, has fallen to the ground. We're not seeing the reform. It's disappointing, and. Um, you know that uh, this, this sort of uh, bloom has gone off the rose. Yeah, it's it. I mean that um, reform was always going to be the biggest problem. I think the Japanese historically, in terms of uh, you know, can demonstrate the ability to spend, but the change is, um, and obviously the older you know, the older we all get, the, the harder change becomes for all of us in Japan. As a uh, you know, I think probably the oldest government um, uh, certainly um, uh, uh, you know in the, in the developed world. So in fact, on, on the undeveloped world, but the. Um, uh, the, there is a lot of resistance there. There is change, or is it, there are propositions of decent change, like zoning, um, which uh, which we're very encouraged by. You know, the potential gaming uh, uh, gaming changes. But this week, we saw the likelihood of the gaming rule getting passed reduced, and that is very disappointing. Um, we think, uh, to be honest, I think um, the the market needs to come off in order to create the right environment for change to be accepted. Um, so we are again, you know. I do think that the Nikkei is going to come off um, a little bit further, maybe four or five percent. And the reason for that is we've still got, um, you know, with all with increase. I think as the, as U.S. markets drift lower, uncertainty goes up. Historically, the yen has been a, uh, a safe haven um, currency. Now we don't necessarily agree with that, but um, whether just, we agree or it not, is, it, it is what it is. Yeah, it is what it is. It is what it is. Who knows um, why? But it always seems to strengthen when uh, risk appetite goes down the drain. Uh, uh, just, yeah. just finally, because you know, running short on time, uh, you know, pretty words. Uh, love to hear it. Uh, but for the average retail investor, you know, they're, they're probably a bit jaded now, a little bit uh, at this stage. Um, what would you say to them? Uh, are we sort of getting to a period when they can have confidence in these markets, or, or you know, is it uh, should Mister and Mrs. Watanabe stay on the sidelines? Um, well, I don't know, just I, mean Japan. I even mean throughout Asia. Yeah, look, uh, there, there's always going to be opportunity. I do think, uh, I think exercising patience right now for us, we, uh, you know, we're, we're sitting here day in, day out watching this stuff, so we're happy to go long in a in declining market to trade the bounce. But I think right now, um, you know, we've got, I think you wait till learning season is over. The, the probability of, um, you know, the chance of getting it, it, it right when you're, when you have to do a, a regular job are, for me, quite low. So I would wait. Um, another few percent and just just hanging in there until after may yeah okay ben thank you ben collette head of japan and asian equities at sunrise brokers i told you he was handsome and that he had a low voice um actually you can google him he's quite a good looking dude i have to say even myself okay the time uh 17 minutes now after eight o'clock we ask the question at this moment is there any link between the sell-off of tech stocks and high frequency trading also is the controversy over michael lewis's new book contributing to lower volumes in markets and is hft going to go away soon given the plethora of investigations that have been launched. Well, let's say good morning now to Eric Hunsader, founder and CEO of Nanex. Mr. Hunsader, good morning. 
Whoa, we had him waiting on the line. He probably uh, he probably hung up on us. Uh, give you another second to respond, uh, Mr. No, Hunsader. I'm, I'm here. Yeah, You're great. Not me? Sorry, sorry to make you wait a little little bit of time there, but uh, yeah, we're just talking here about high frequency trading, the controversy generated by Michael Lewis's book. Whether there's any link with um, with the uh, lower volumes uh, or with the sell off in uh, tech stocks, and and what you think happens next. So let's get started first. Um, lower volumes is that as a result of this controversy? I sort of doubt it. I, it's hard to know one way or the other. You track it a lot, though. I mean, you, you record, I think, uh, trading as it happens. Uh, and uh, are you noticing uh, any big change since the book came out? Not really, which is um, surprising. There's a little bit more cleanup on uh, what we used to see a lot of crossed and locked markets is no longer really the case. But as far as volumes and distribution of volume, it's, it really hasn't changed. If you could explain something I think a lot of people would, would have some fascination in is the point I think you've made, which is it's not really high-frequency trading, but it's high-frequency quoting and the withdrawal of those quotes. Explain that. Right. I mean, it's when, when you put out a quote and cancel it before really any other process or human being – could possibly react on it. Um, that's the kind of thing that you, humans wouldn't tolerate face to face, and we shouldn't tolerate them with machines either. Yeah, uh, of course. What they would say, and and they have said it a lot, is that uh, you know there's all this liquidity uh, due to what they do, and there's also uh, much lower spreads, and so well, they, that's, they, yeah, they, that's, they the liquidity argument is particularly interesting in light of your previous question because. When you pull your quote faster than people can react, you're essentially pulling liquidity faster than others can react. So on the one hand, you know, they're claiming providing liquidity. On the other hand, they're, they're claiming they have to be able to cancel quotes or cancel liquidity faster. And they're really clogging up the system sometimes. Oh, absolutely. We hit uh, they saturate or fill networks uh, at least once a minute every minute of the trading day. I've heard that dark pools occupy something like 40% of all U.S. trading, which is a shocking number to me, and I think it would be shocking to a lot of people. Uh, and the whole reason that these dark pools emerged was to sort of um, protect big players, big institutional investors uh, from others front-running. And now we find out that it's the dark pools and the high-frequency trading that are capitalizing on the front-running. Well, the, you're right. So the dark pools are all pricing based off of our consolidated feed, and the high-frequency traders in the lit markets are all uh, processing on uh, direct feeds, which are two feeds supplying the same core information, stock prices, which, by the way, is illegal according to our regulations. But that's what makes it all work. It, it's the fact that 40% of the trading is based on what they think is real-time prices, and it's not. Would some of this get fixed if you just charged people for pulling a quote? Yes, but you would also fix a lot of this by simply enforcing Reg and MS. And uh, the SEC actually did that in September of 2012 when they fined the NYSE $5 million for providing the quotes faster on direct feeds. Yeah, remind everybody what uh, Reg MNS is. That's what set up 
the fragmentation in the U.S. market. It allowed multiple markets to quote and trade the same stock, and they had to follow some simple rules, like if there was a better price on another exchange, they were required to route that order to the better exchange. And it was all based on there would be one central computer that would collect prices from all the exchanges. That was known as the consolidated quote. And that's the reference price to determine where orders got sent. And in order for that to work, the exchanges could not provide quote information faster on a direct feed product. Well, the problem is, is that they do. Yeah, I heard the Chicago Mercantile Exchange CEO saying this morning that uh, they pump it out all at the same speed. Uh, yeah, that's a different market. So yeah. the CME, there's only one place that anything trading on the CME trades. It's a, it's a different game with equities where IBM can trade on 14 different lit markets plus an unknown number of dark pools. Yeah, so a lit market for for people listening, a lit market just means a a transparent market that you see the uh, you see the quotes on. Right, and so IBM, the quote on IBM from one of the thirteen or fourteen direct feeds will come before the quote on the consolidated feed. Well, you have all your retail prices, all, all your retail trades are based on the slower consolidated. All of the dark dark pool trades are based on the slower consolidated which sets up a perfect latency arbitrage between the direct feeds and the consolidated. And this was all foreseen when we passed this Reg NMS. And in, again, the only pro- the problem that we have is the regulator isn't enforcing it. They did it once. It's like pulling over one speeder you know, one day a year. It kind of sounds like what you're saying is that uh, big institutional investors and the hedge funds, they're... Uh, they're winning on one hand and they're losing on the other, and that everybody's involved in it. Um, is that the case? It, it is. You know, it's gotten to a point where um, people actually talk. Uh, he, well, actually, the head of FINRA, which is the top uh, enforcement uh, regulatory agency, along with the SEC here in the United States, over the weekend he was comparing these direct fees with a first class ticket and said, well, if you pay more, can ride in first class. If you pay more, you can get your quotes faster. The only problem with that statement is that's illegal. Okay. And here you have the top regulators saying it. All right. We, we got to go. Bradley Bennett. We got to go. We're almost out of time, but in 20 seconds, uh, are the average uh, investors listening to this program getting screwed by all of this? They are. Society is screwed when a group of people is allowed to break regulations and the regulator knows about it. Okay, I got to let you go on that note. Thank you very much. Uh, that's Thank you. A, that's Eric Scott Hunsader, founder and CEO of Nanex. Twenty-five minutes after eight o'clock, I'm very pleased to say good morning to Simon Powell, head of Asian Oil and Gas Research at CLSA. Simon, good morning to you. Good morning, Brian. How are you? Uh, very good. Nice to have you with us. Um, yeah, I couldn't quite get my head around everything that um, he was saying, that previous guest. But you know, I'm not a uh, a vector math wonk like I declared yesterday. But um, energy, you know, that's a little bit easier to understand, although it gets complicated too. My feeling at the moment is that we're in a, a, a sort of downtrend in oil, uh, a secular downtrend in oil, but it's popped up here of late because of Ukraine and Russia. 
Um, is that your view? Yeah, look, um, you know, underlying demand for oil is still growing, um, pushed by China, even though China's economy is uh, growing fat slower than it has done. Um, uh, China's still half the world's incremental demand for oil. But, uh, you know, Europe and the U.S. are still not particularly robust from a demand point of view. From a supply point of view, uh, North America continues to produce a lot of associated gas liquids. You can call it, you know, uh, liquids that come from shale gas, as well as refining the dirty barrel out of North, uh, out of Canada and the rest of North America. So, 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 so they're so, washing so, oil in North America. Yeah, so supply is, is, is up and demand is uh, relatively weak. So oil has ticked lower. You're right. Ge- geopolitical risk kind of keeps Brent above $100 a barrel. But, you know, we think it, it, it trends from where it is now back to 100 a barrel. About 100 a barrel. Now, also with natural gas, that's a complicated one because the U.S. Uh, is not exporting uh, LNG. Uh, not per- yet. Not, not yet, but it, it may do soon. However, I've also read uh, just generally that uh, fracking and, and getting um, gas from shale is not really that great of a thing. Um, is that wrong? Well, when you say not great of a thing, I think... It's that, expensive. Yeah, look, th- there are a few things. Um, we, we've seen a significant rise in natural gas production in North America from, from unconventionals, shale specifically. Um, one of the things that, that the whole world is a little uncertain on is how steep are the decline rates from these wells. Conventional gas, when you tap it, you know, it's like, a, like gas in a balloon. It just, there's an amount of it and it comes out. With shale gas, it relies on continuous fracking to keep the seams open. And what we've seen is quite steep decline rates. So, um, yes, n- uh, North America's awash with natural gas, but if the decline rates turn out to be steeper than the industry thinks, then there might not be as much. But there's still a large amount. So we're still of the view that North America exports LNG. Not a huge amount, 30 to 50 million tonnes which in the scheme of things is, you know, 25% of current world demand and future demand probably only 10%. Would that potentially lower the cost of gas for, um, for China? It could do. I mean, I think, you know, if, if I mean, you... Let's tell people, doesn't China pay at the moment about uh, four times the amount as uh, North America? Yeah, it does. Because, you know, North America is a, a bit of an anomaly. You know, gas prices separated from oil prices, they decoupled. In the rest of the world, gas prices are still linked to oil prices. So, you know, gas uh, into Japan from from the Middle East, uh, from Qatar, is linked to oil prices. And the future LNG contracts are still linked to oil prices. So, uh, yes, China pays a lot for its imported natural gas. Um, and, and we do too. Yeah, we pay we pay an awful lot because we're right at the end of the pipe. Hmm. Um, but then you can argue, you know, here in Hong Kong we can afford to. Um, the, the, the issue of natural gas pricing in China is very complex. I don't, I don't see a huge amount of natural gas going from North America to China. I don't think the Chinese want to pay those kind of prices. I think China will continue to develop its own domestic natural gas business very rapidly, um, and that's something people should, should focus on because that's the one bright spot in the China energy space. Um, they're going to use much more natural gas to try and fix this pollution problem. They're going to try and develop their own shale gas 
uh, industry, and that could be massive. But as you, it also could be very expensive. So, so do, do you have a buy on some of the uh, China uh, energy companies? Yeah, look, we we have a buy on PetroChina. It's it's the biggest owner of natural gas in China today. It owns seventy percent of all the gas in the ground, or more. And if shale turns out to be something significant, um, it'll be a very big owner of that as well. Why has the share price performed kind of weak? Look, I think the market dislikes state-owned enterprises in China. Um, you know, across the board, SOE is not doing particularly well from a share price point of view. Oh. And, and PetroChina was really significantly hobbled by a major uh, corruption investigation where four of their employees were invested, uh, arrested last year. And I think yeah. that's a drag on the share price. Briefly, how about Sinook? It seems a pretty good company. Oh, Sinook is a great company. You know, ROEs are still high. But the issue the market's fixated on, and I am as well, is that the production growth has gone away. And this company is going to have to spend an awful lot of money to try and bring production growth back. And and those two stories, PetroChina's gas development and CNOC uh, drilling for more oil, says that maybe you know retail investors should look at oil service companies. Because if oil companies are going to spend more capex drilling for and exploring for oil, um, the recipients of that are the oil service companies. Okay, Simon. Uh, I thought you were a crusty old dog, but you're not. You're actually quite a smoothie. And uh, thank you very much for joining us here on Money for Nothing. We're out of time, but we will uh, we'll have you back again for sure. Okay, just as we go out, we'll look at the markets here. And uh, we see Japan closed for trading today. Um, in Australia and in in Seoul and New Zealand, we, we see um, just some very, very modest gains. And currencies uh, not doing all that much at the moment. So let's check out uh, the weather today. It's going to be mainly cloudy, some sunshine expected, a few showers later, maximum temperature about 27 degrees. And the next couple of days, cloudy skies with rain. That's it for me today. The news coming up next and then back chat. The news with Janice Wong. The United States has imposed further sanctions on Russia in response to what it called the country's illegal intervention in Ukraine. The sanctions target seven individuals and 17 Russian companies linked to President Vladimir Putin. The BBC's Daniel Sanford reports. The most eye-catching name on the new sanctions list is one of the hard men of Russian politics, Igor Sechin. A former intelligence officer and once President Putin's closest ally in the Kremlin, he now runs Rosneft, 